For decades, it's been the habit of most cannabis growers to dedicate themselves to using several bottles of various synthetic nutrients to grow their plants. What we've seen in the last few years, though, is a revival of natural growing techniques that focus on building healthy soil, which in turn grows thriving plants. Instead of dumping raw chemicals into the soil and demanding it grow, true gardeners are learning to work in cooperation with the soil and its inhabitants to create the healthiest environment possible for their plants to live. These natural cannabis growers work with the soil's microbe communities, fungi, and organic food web to strike a balance where they no longer need to add raw nutrients at all because the soil itself contains everything the plant needs to thrive naturally. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. Jeff is author of the award-winning trilogy of books titled Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, Teeming with Nutrients, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Optimizing Plant Nutrition, and Teeming with Fungi, The Organic Grower's Guide to Mycorrhiza. Jeff writes the longest-running gardening column in the U.S., running 41 years now for the Alaska Dispatch. He's also a lawyer and former TV and radio show host. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to hear Jeff speak at the 2016 Emerald Cup in Sonoma, California. He is an incredibly lively speaker, and he kept the room laughing with salacious jokes about fungi in the food web. I knew I had to ask him to come on this show, and he was kind enough to accept the invitation. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. So, Jeff, when I was a kid, the folks on my block would, would actually cook their soil in old coffee containers on the grill to make sure that it was good and dead before adding their store-bought inputs and potting up their plants. But now, though, the idea of creating a living soil community to nourish the plants instead of just adding nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium is really taking over. And for many growers, the idea of creating a self-sustaining soil system instead of just pouring in more fertilizers is a huge jump in their thinking. How do you like to describe living soil in a way that makes sense to folks who are new to thinking about it this way? Hmm, great question. Uh, and it takes me back to my father's sterilizer. He had the biggest compost pile literally in the town. I mean, this was almost half an acre of compost. <laughs> and he would then take that compost and put it into a sterilizer. Wow. And I remember how bad it smelled. So let's start right there. I think you could you could sort of say that, you know, living living soil is all that smell that occurs when you sterilize soil. Uh, and and so I, I would start right there. Obviously, soil is is not what it used to be. We used to think it was just this inert substance that was there to hold plants and on which you could put fertilizer and, uh, you know, which allowed uh, water to drain through. We now know that that's absolutely not true. It's organic matter. It's minerals from rocks that have broken down over the eons. Uh, and it is a tremendous amount of uh, living organisms which require oxygen and water in order to be able to live. So it's it's completely different than what it was when you and I were were younger. 
Yeah, absolutely. My actually, my dad did that same thing with with taking his soil and sterilizing it. And and nowadays, when when we think about living soil, it's much more of a instead of considering it an an, an inert thing, it's it's more about a, a neighborhood. We're trying to create a neighborhood of good neighbors that'll that'll uh, you know be a nice buffet for the plant instead of essentially being dead and therefore needing to rely on us for everything. Well, I think what we're really trying to set, yeah, you're you're right. We're trying to set up a neighborhood, and so if you've got a good a good soil uh, situation, what you've got is a condominium that's operating properly. So it's a it's a perfectly constructed condominium, never needs any repairs. Uh, it's got all of the inhabitants that you'd want to have in a condominium, uh, so that everybody has fun and they can you know help each other out and uh, they don't irritate each other too much and they take care of the bad guy when they appear uh, and and uh, it's fully stocked with great food so everybody has a, a great time in that condominium you're absolutely right it's you know it's it's a neighborhood it's a condominium of uh, you know uh, that just hums uh, and and it really is the soil food web uh, concept uh, that's taking over I think you know h- how we're looking at not just how we grow cannabis but it's how we grow food it's how we what we eat uh it's how we eat it's why we eat uh the comparison between the stomach and how it operates i shouldn't say the stomach but the intestines and how it operates you know versus uh you know the 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 soil food web i mean it all everything ties together it's a beautiful beautiful system so because there are so many ways to coax a biologically active community along in the soil, what do you see as a good place for a beginner to start? Well, I think compost is always the best place to start. Um, you know, compost contains in it all of the organisms that you'd really want to have to to. to Hold the, the the foods that the plants eat, and, uh, uh, or that yeah. Well, I guess that's the proper term. Uh, and and all of the organisms that eat those organisms and poop out that food, so that it's available in plant usable form. So it's got all of the uh, fungi and the bacteria, which are at the bottom of the soil food web, uh, and then it's got the nematodes and protozoa in phenomenal numbers uh, that that cycle the nutrients, uh, so that so that compost becomes usable for the plants and and uh you know compost is just the easiest thing to get your hands on it's easy to make it's it's easy to buy of course it's easy to buy lousy compost um but it's also easy to buy good compost and it's easy to make so i would start right there that's 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 the be all the beginning so so when people have you know found their way to either a good source to buy their compost or they've done a little homework and they've figured out how to make compost at home, most right. folks tend to move on from that to nutrient teas and and we're huge fans of nutrient teas here at Shaping mm-hmm. Fire. What of your uh, what are some of your favorite wildcrafted nutrient teas for encouraging uh, probiotic growth in the soil? Well, again, I mean, let's think. You're thinking in terms of the beginner. I mean, you take that compost. You're right. The, once you have that compost, then you learn that you can do designer things with it. You can make more fungally dominated compost or more bacterially dominated compost. For cannabis, you want bacterially dominated compost, uh, and and for uh, all sorts of reasons, you can make teas out of that compost, and you can make fungally dominated teas or more fungally dominated teas and, and bacterially dominated teas, which you can use as soil drenches and which you can then spray also on the leaves where the microbes that are in that 
uh, compost tea outcompete the bacteria. Uh, the, well, actually, yeah, the bacteria and the fungi and the and the nematodes, the bad guys that might be on those leaves or might get on those leaves. So if you spray good stuff on them, there's no room for the bad guys. There's no food left for the bad guys. There's no entryways for the bad guys. So. Uh, Compost tea, definitely something that people want to get into. The intermediate step would be uh, uh, compost extracts. You don't need a brewer. You don't need a tremendous amount of time. Uh, in 15 minutes, you can you can take compost, wrap wrap it up in in uh, cheesecloth, uh, uh, and this, just knead it in a in a uh, you know a couple of gallons of water. Uh, then you've got a, you've got an extract of a lot of those microbes. They haven't multiplied themselves, but you've pulled them out of the compost. Uh, and then the next step, of course, is the compost teas, which require a brewer. Uh, it's often called fermentation because you're brewing the, the the tea. You're taking energy and you're pulling out the bacteria and the fungi and the nematodes and the protozoa, and you're then uh, feeding them and causing them to either grow or to multiply. Uh, uh, or to change their ratios uh, during a 24 to 48 hour period, and that that to many people is sort of the ultimate way of adding biology. Um, I would have said so when I wrote Teeming with Microbes, the 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 first edition back in 2006. I'm beginning to think that it is certainly important, um, but that there are other things that you can do, namely mycorrhizal fungi, uh, which which can be added. Um, of course, we already know about uh, adding nitrogen-fixing uh, bacteria to the proper plants. Um, so, so I think I think compost tea is a large part of a bigger picture. So, when you were talking about the nutrient teas, you were talking about a fungally dominant one, and and then or, or, or bacterially dominant, or, or bacterially dominant, yeah. and and um, you know, a lot of people who have not gotten to the point yet where they're prepared for a brewer, uh, right. either either they don't quite have the budget yet, or they're just you know on their learning path and they're just not there yet. Right. Um, uh, they'll be probably be using more the 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 second version that you suggested, which is simply take your compost and put it in some um, in some cheese cloth and you know squeeze it into right. a five gallon bucket of water that that has had the you know chlorine vaped off of it or whatever right and then exactly. use and use that to uh, to water your plants and that's great but some folks still would like to be able to get that fungally dominant tea effect um, can you suggest a way that we can perhaps inoculate our compost pile so sure. there's going to be more mycelium there for when we do this this squeeze the cheesecloth approach Sure. Well, uh, well, what happens, of course, is that if you add more brown material to your compost pile, particularly once you've got that compost cooking and, and really going, you're breaking down more more materials, which which are likely to feed uh, uh, the the fungi. So you can start there. You can take the 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 material that you're going to be using either for your tea or for your compost extract, which is that second method, uh, and you can inoculate it with foods that will grow the fungi, and then you take that material and you use it to make your tea or your extract. And in that particular instance, you can use uh, baby oatmeal. 
uh, you know, ground up barley. Um, but baby oatmeal is probably the easiest thing to get your hands on. And you just simply you mix it in so that you can see the flakes. Uh, and then you keep it in a dark, warm area for 24, 48 hours. And the fungal hyphae will grow and multiply and form a, a, a mycelium. Uh, and then you can use that block because it will become a block. Uh, for your compost here, your compost extract. That will be more fungally dominated. Or you can, and I should say, you can use fungal foods in your compost tea, not in the abstract because they're not there long enough to be able to grow. Uh, in a compost tea, the bacteria will start to multiply in the first 15, 20 minutes. Fungus will grow, but they really won't multiply for 24, 48 hours, probably more like 48 hours. And really what they're doing is growing them in a compost tea. So you want to use foods that will feed them. Turns out molasses will actually feed compost tea, uh, uh, fung fungus as well as bacteria. Just don't use too much. You'll get a lot of bacteria if you use too much. Um, uh, the fish hydrolysates will, will also uh, feed the fungi. Um, and some people use green sand in their compost tea as a, as a substrate to try to feed the fungi. So, yeah, what you really want to make, however, for, for cannabis is a bacterially dominated tea. So you really don't even have to worry too much about this stuff. Well, then, then like that just begs, begs the question, right? So if that was a how to make a fungally dominant, how would we flip to the other side and make it more bacterially dominant? Well, remember I said they multiply within 20, you know, within 15 minutes. Uh, if you do nothing to the tea but just, you know, aerate it for 24 hours, they're just going to be multiplying because they'll be living off the organic material. But if you add molasses, uh, they, they will go nuts. Uh, and, and uh, you know, of course, it's got to be non-sulfur. Um, and they'll they'll multiply like crazy. Uh, a lot of people um, will throw a little bit of of uh, uh, alfalfa in their compost teas the last the last couple of hours because there's they're covered with protozoa and they'll multiply and and so you'll get a nice little mix that recycles itself or cycles the nutrients throughout. So. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a pretty interesting system, and, and above and beyond everything else, whatever kind of tea you make, it's ultimately up to the plant to adjust its extracts to be able to attract what it needs. So the plant will adjust things to make it work. Right on. So to kind of um, to summarize that for, for, for folks who are new to this idea and it isn't just fitting in immediately, you, you start by taking some of your finished compost, wrapping it in um, uh, cheesecloth, squeezing it into a five-gallon bucket of water. Well, just sort of well, kind of kneading it for 15 minutes. You know, oh, you wrap right. it up and you just knead that cheesecloth for 15 minutes. Just if I can make some sound effects, <laughs> you know, and you squeeze these things out because let me, let me just back up for, for a second just to make sure for people who really don't know what we're talking about. And it's all outlined in the first book, Teaming with Microbes, which by, by the way, everybody should get. And if you get it and don't like it, I'll buy it back at three times the price. I guarantee you're going you're gonna to get a lot of use out of it. But the bottom line is that what's happening is the plants are putting out chemicals through their root system that attract the bacteria and the fungi, and they eat the stuff that the plant's putting out because it's got a lot of carbons in it. They, in turn, attract nematodes and protozoa who eat them. They poop the excess. It's got a lot of nutrients in it, particularly nitrogen, which feeds the plant. It's all happening right there in the root zone. The plant can change those exudates to attract what it needs. So, you know, if it, if it's if you put down something and it's something in there the plant wants, it'll change the exudate to attract what it needs. The plant is in control, not you. Um, but again, 
so so you 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 need the stuff for 15 minutes you you pull out the nematodes and the protozoa and the bacteria and 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 the bacteria and the and the and the uh, 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 fungi make soil structure and so that's why you've got to use the energy of your hands to make the compost extract or the energy from a a pump to make compost tea because these things are sticky and they 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 bind together it's like the bacteria on your teeth you don't just swish your teeth out in the morning with water you brush them with a lot of energy to get rid of that bacterial slime and that's what you have to do to the particle of soil to break off that bacteria uh, and 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 to strip out that fungi so you use energy and you make this soup or these teas and then you and then you use them on your your system and so the um you know uh, i tend to use a um what do you call it? An aquarium pump uh, that act both aerates the tea, but then also uh, provides the energy to, to break it up. Um, do you find that, um, that that works good for you as well? No, because nope. I think air, uh, unless it's a gigantic aquarium like the size of the uh, you know the Monterey Aquarium, I think the pump's probably too small. Oh. Um, you know, in the beginning, we used to use those aquarium pumps. Uh, a lot of research was done by Dr. Elaine Ingham, who's certainly the goddess of all of this stuff. And anytime you get a chance to go hear Dr. Elaine or read anything she's written, she's she, you know, well, what can I say? I mean, we bow at her feet, but. Yeah. Um, uh yeah those pumps don't don't provide the 6 or 7 parts per million uh air that you really need uh and so uh you, you really got to you really got to step up the air if you want to make it really work so right, right on great <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question yeah, yeah. and you shouldn't and I, you shouldn't use those aquarium stones either uh because those stones when you turn the pump off fill up with water and it's got the bacterial slime in it. It forms and grows in those little little holes, and they're impossible to clean. And, you, and then you, you get bad situations. So you, you just you know just bubble. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. So after after folks have gotten into you know nutrient and compost teas, a lot of folks really enjoy moving on to fermentations and labs and such. What are your favorite fermentations for thriving soil? Well, you know, I don't. I'm. I'm not really into them in a big way. Mm-hmm. You're talking about EM and uh, yeah, you know, exactly. Can, yeah, you know, to me, if you're using compost tea, you're getting what you need. Um, EM is is it, it certainly works. I mean, people tell me it works. I don't use it other than uh, making bokashi in the winter time because it's a great way to sort of make compost in a cold climate in the winter without getting smells. Um, when your pile's not working, obviously, um, but but it's got you know six, six, 15, 16 different microbes in it. Compost tea has thirty five thousand different microbes. In it. You know, there's a world of difference, uh, and I think the diversity makes sense when you when you believe that the it's the plant that's choosing what it needs. You want to give it as much opportunity to choose what it what it really needs. So I like the diversity of compost tea over these ferments, but but I'm certainly not discouraging of them. Uh, I think all of them do one thing that that's important and that was sort of outlined in the second book, uh, Teeming with Nutrients, which which I don't guarantee because I think it's a, a much more difficult book to, to, to get through, but I think it's an important book. Uh, and that is the law of return. And we, we violate the law of return when we deal with soils because we harvest things from that soil. That stuff's supposed to fall down and be decayed and go back in and feed the plant again and feed the soil again and feed the microbes again. We harvest it. So, you know, we're taking stuff away. And when you put these ferments in, you're adding a lot, uh, some of the stuff that you've taken away. You're, you're, you're helping to rebalance 
the uh, law of return. Right. That on. makes sense. Yeah, 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 I follow you. Right on. So we're going to take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is organic gardener and author Jeff Lowenfels. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light dep and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Brandstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light dep techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light dep and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from true terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. And what I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. 
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is organic gardener and author, Jeff Lowenfels. So Jeff, you know, often with crossover gardeners coming from foods and ornamentals <laughs> over to cannabis, they don't know too much about cannabis sativa. But, you know, from hearing you today and more especially listening to your 2017 Emerald Cup presentation, you definitely seem familiar with growing it. Where did you learn about growing cannabis? Gee, <laughs> where did I learn about growing cannabis? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I was, I guess I was in college. So back in the, oh my God, it was a long time ago. Um, maybe I was in law school when I grew my first plant. But I've always grown things. And cannabis is, you know, and, and I tell people, this, uh, for those who don't, don't know on this broadcast, I write a garden column. I've been writing one for Oh my God! Forty some odd years for the for the Anchorage newspaper in Alaska, and and uh, uh, you know I I write about cannabis now because it's legal here, and I tell people it's just a plant, so it doesn't take any real special skills to grow. I think the biggest problem that I am beginning to notice with with growing cannabis is that there are too many myths that people follow. Uh, without thinking about what they're doing and why those myths may might have developed and why they might, might be myths and and therefore not fact. Uh, but I started way back when, uh, back in the uh, oh I guess back in the late sixties, uh, growing cannabis uh, first in my apartment in Boston. Um, then I moved to Alaska. I remember having a couple of cannabis plants here. It was legal because our Supreme Court uh, back in 1975 came out with a conclusion that uh, our Constitution allows you to, to, to grow cannabis privacy of your home. And so I had some cannabis plants growing on my property. Uh, and I remember my father coming up to visit and wandering around and saying, gee, what is that plant? And he was, he was the guy that taught me all the stuff I knew about growing plants, although he had never seen a cannabis plant. So I've been growing it for a long time. It's been legal here in Alaska, uh, as I said, since 1975. And uh, therefore, I've had a lot of you know, opportunity to practice without having to worry about the law coming down on my head. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it must be really exciting for you, you know, with your relationship with the plant going so far back and now suddenly people asking you more questions about cannabis instead of, you know, the more traditional gardening topics that you might get through your column. It must be interesting and exciting for you to be able to, you know, talk more about this plant that you love um, now that it's, it, you know, it's being normalized across the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, for the the most interesting thing is first of all that my both of my publishers, Timber Press, which has published all three of my my books, um, uh, you know, said this book's got to have cannabis in it. Uh, wow, uh, had they said that to me in two thousand six, Teaming with Micros would have been all about cannabis. Um, but uh, my publisher in my newspaper uh, also has said, "Gee, we in your column, we'd like you to address cannabis." What? <laughs> what? Uh, you know, I don't have to disguise it as a tomato plant anymore. <laughs> it's it's really quite a change. So that's 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 interesting. The excitement is that cannabis growers, as you know, are some of the finest growers in the world. I mean, they I shouldn't say growers, finest gardeners in the world. And and so the opportunity to be able to kick around uh, questions and and things about cannabis uh, uh, and to learn things from from them 
is 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 exciting. And finally, uh, you know, speaking of tomatoes, Ann Landers, if she was a garden columnist, would have said, "How many times can you repeat a tomato column?" <laughs> uh, to get something new to be able to write about and something with so much to write about, wow, it's fabulous. And I, and I am convinced on a gardening side that cannabis is the next tomato plant. It, you know, the tomato has always been the holy grail of the home gardener to grow a beautiful tomato, you know. Uh, and, I, and I think now we're going to see uh, cannabis replacing the tomato as, as the holy grail plant. Oh, that sounds like such a beautiful vision right there. <laughs> well, in fact, it's not even a vision. I can tell you that uh, three of us are going to be speaking at the Garden Writers Association's conference, the national conference on cannabis. I'm going to be speaking about how you write about it, uh, you know, for a generalized public. Uh, we've got a gentleman who's going to be speaking about the breeding efforts that are going on so that it's available as a, as a uh, you know, outdoor six-pack plant, um, uh, a gentleman who's very, very heavily involved in, in micropropagation. Uh, and then the third part of the, of the speaker is going to be somebody who's going to be pointing out, you know, some of the stupidity uh, that people have bought into that has resulted in the stigma uh, that makes it difficult to write about the stuff. So it's, it's going to be very interesting. It's the first time ever uh, this national organization's had a conversation about a plant that I'm virtually certain three quarters of them use, you know, on a weekly basis. <laughs> it's so nice to see, um, you know, we're essentially priming the pump of of the next generation of educators to reach out to even more people. You know, I spend a lot of time um, uh, speaking with, with doctors and naturopaths and other caregivers about how to work with patients and their endocannabinoid system. And so I, I'm creating new educators. Similarly, um, with the event that you've just described, you are educating um, uh, gardening writers how to then reach out to their following and teach them how to grow can cannabis. And this is how, you know, these are force multipliers of education. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and once, trust me, once the garden writers start writing about it, we reach, and, I, and we say garden writers, but these are the folks that do television shows and, you know, podcasts and radio shows and newspaper columns and magazine columns and books. Once they start writing about cannabis on a regular basis, the same way they write about tomatoes, it's over, folks. I don't care whether it's Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, his mother or his grandmother. It's over uh, because it, it, it's just a plant, folks. It's just a plant. Boy, that, that could be a good book title. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy seeing all the people who have not ever really kept a garden before suddenly decide they want to start growing food because they've had such a good experience growing their first couple cannabis plants and them realizing that, that more than anything, cannabis is actually a gateway to gardening. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, it's an easy plant to grow. It's yeah. I mean, I'll admit to grow to grow really great cannabis takes a little bit of skill, um, but but once you, once you grow a nice cannabis plant, you say, whoa, wait a second. You know, he, he, I could I can grow anything, and you can. Uh, cannabis is a fun plant to grow. There are a couple of little tricks, but once you once you nail those down, man. What a fun plant to grow. <laughs> right on. So let's get back into the garden. So, you know, yeah. gardeners use a lot of nutrients, as we were talking about in the first set. What do you see as a good model of recycling these nutrients back into the ecosystem in a sustainable way after you harvest? Hmm. 
a good model of recycling. Um, well, I think what you're really describing is sort of regenerative gardening. Um, and if I understand your question properly, there are a number of things that I do to try to – again, it all goes back to this law of return – uh, that I th- that I try to do in order to balance the fact that I've broken the law of return. Uh, so I guess do my time is is the proper term. So first of all, I reuse my soils. Uh, I know a lot of people throw their soils out. At a minimum, put the soils in a compost pile, let them compost for a season or two, and then reuse them after that. But I reuse my soil right away. Um, I don't disturb the roots that are in the soil. I let that organic matter uh, become available to the microbes and therefore the soil system itself uh, during during the growth of the next plant. Um, I let the, that root system act as a guideway for the new roots of the plants that I plant in there. And I let the mycorrhizal network, which I know has developed in that pot or in that garden bed, uh, remain undisturbed. Um, so that it going out to get goodies, uh, which 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 I'm adding into the garden or into the pot by a using soluble organics and b putting compost and organics on the surface. Uh, any leaves that come off the plant on the surface, any sticks and stems either go into the compost pile that then goes on the plant or go right on the surface of the plant. And I always always have mulch. Whenever I'm growing cannabis, so it actually sounds like you're. I mean, it sounds like you're. That's a no-till technique, really, uh, but but in a container. And um, you know, my next question was actually going to wrap into this. I was going to ask you if you think it think it makes more sense to no-till and simply replant in the same pot using fresh top amendments that'll get watered in, or are you more a fan of emptying the pots in the pile and then the mending the whole pile? But it sounds like you're of the mind that no, just just pop out the 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 top of the root system of the prior plant and then just put your new start right on in that same hole yeah i don't think you can do it forever uh well you probably can do it forever you got to keep an eye on what's going on but it's certainly worth people experimenting uh and and trying now you know the other system works as well don't get me wrong uh but but gee you've done a lot of work for that let's take a male plant for example people just throw them out Wait a second that male plant has been throwing out the extra dates that a cannabis plant throws out into the soil why, why would you get rid of that? You know, it's full of these wonderful, delicious exudates, as Elaine says, cook, cake, cooking candies and stuff that these microbes love. You're going to throw it out just because it's a male plant. No, 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 no. You cut off the flowers, you know, you compost the rest, and you keep that soil and you plant right in there. It's bingo. You got all the exudates you need right away to start with. Wow. You know, it's, it's just, to me, it just makes logical sense. Um, I've written three books on the subject. So. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier you were talking about Bokashi, and Bokashi really seems to be taking over. And for those who don't know, it's a fermented, inoculated, fermented bran, I guess. And and do you have any tips or insight that you'd like to offer on making or using it? Because, you know, you've, you've probably come across some over the days. Well, you know, it's it's supposed to be a proprietary mix. You're supposed to buy it only from people who've got licenses, et cetera, et cetera. But if you go on the internet, and I'm, I, I won't do it for you, but you can certainly use Google, which is the cannabis grower's finest tool. Uh, you can you can uh, find all sorts of recipes to make your own. It's not hard. Uh, it's very very easy to do so. And you can use some of your old Pakashi to sort of you know inoculate the stuff that you've used but again to me compost is much better than just th- than using it i'm not I, can't, I just can't figure out why it's taken over 
Right on. You know, sometimes uh, you, you, we keep on coming back to compost tea, and it makes me think that sometimes, you know, um, people like to get more complex just for the complexity's sake because they're active learners and they're curious and they want to do more and more stuff. But since we keep on circling back, would you say that, you know, the, um, you know, using a, a quality compost tea is, you know, I'm going to air quotes this, but all you need that like really keep it simple. And if you use the compost tea, you're going to get where you want to go. And if you want to learn this extra stuff, by all means, do it for your own enjoyment. But really it's, it's, you're adding icing on an already done cake well it depends on what you're growing in i mean if you've got phenomenal soil like we have here in alaska you know it, 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 yeah compost tea is all you need our soil is full of volcanic ash it's got all the minerals you'd ever want etc 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 you know i understand and i believe that it is possible to grow plants without ever adding anything other than the microbes no question in my mind but that takes longer than you want to wait perhaps uh, you know, you've got a season. You don't want to wait three seasons. You've got a business, et cetera, et cetera. And so adding stuff is not bad. And using just compost tea can certainly work if you've got the right soils, but each to his own. So you've got to do some testing. Um, now, I am, I am a big believer in banding organics underneath plants when I put them in. That doesn't mean I rototill. When you put in a seed or you put in a transplant, you make a hole for it. Well, you can put a little fertilizer in down at the bottom of that hole. You can make the hole a little deeper. And, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you, you, don't have to fer- you don't have to rototill the whole area to destroy it and still be able to apply uh, fertilizers or what I call microbe food. So, uh, and certainly by all means, you can use solubles um, and 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 certainly, by all means, you would want to use mulches and compost. I include as one of those mulches. What is that term you use? That's new to me. Banding organics. Well, if you if you take a look at my second book, which is called uh, what is my second book called? Oh yeah, it's, it's got the nutrients. Most <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, you. I, if I may just digress for a second, I wanted to write this second book. Why? Because I had nothing else to do. I guess no, because I, I was curious about how plants ate. And so I thought it was going to be teeming with nutrients, how plants eat, an organic gardener's guide. You know, they, they came, uh, you know, how, teeming with nutrients, organic gardener's guide to optimizing plant nutrition. What the hell is that? Uh, anyway, um, uh, you know, you, you learn how plants eat, what they take in. Uh, and one of the methods, of course, well, there's three ways plants get their food. One is by flow. In other words, there it's in water, it's soluble, and it goes into the root system by mass flow. Uh, the other is by, you know, osmosis diffusion, uh, which, you know, you struggle through in 10th grade. Uh, and then you've got mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, the osmosis diffusion, you know, that's really sort of when you've got direct contact. And then you've got mycorrhizal fungi that go out into the little pores and, and, and bring food back. Um, and I forgot exactly what you were asking me about, but... Uh, I was just asking you to define yeah. the banding organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when you band below where you're planting, um, and and by banding, you just put a little flat area in there and you just put your fertilizer right down there, or your, I call it microbe food, maybe a little soil on top of it. Then you put your either your transplant or your seed so that the roots 
grow out into that band. I see. Okay, now I understand. So essentially, yeah. you're you're creating a, a preset buffet of nutrients, and and then the the roots are growing, you know, aspiring for nutrients, and then they grow down, and then they hit that band, and then they're there waiting for them. Well, the band is there. They've already deplenished what you know what's 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 in that little zone as they're growing. The mycorrhizal fungi, which you've also inoculated your seeds and your roots with, are growing and are going out into that band and bringing that food back quicker. You know, it's all part. But it, but there's that little bit of food in there that you could add. So you you know when you break that law of return by removing the cannabis plant. Then if you're going to use the same soil, you've got to return the nutrients that would have decayed had you not removed that plant. Right. As I say in my talks, whoever fertilizes the redwoods, how do they get that big? <laughs> Nobody ever puts fertilizer down there. Nobody puts miracle Grow down there. Nobody uses general hydroponic crap. You know, uh, how'd that happen? It's, it's, this thing, it's the law of return wasn't ignored, wasn't broken. All that stuff fell down and decayed. Fascinating, isn't it? So anyway, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so the sec- but the, but to go back. So the second book, teeming with nutrients, which people should read and struggle to, because it's important to know. Uh, no, it's got some chemistry in it, and I apologize, but it's got a, the least amount of chemistry I could put in it. And I promised myself I would never ever talk about the Krebs cycle, and so it's no Krebs cycle in it whatsoever. And I don't even think I have the formula for photosynthesis in it, so people don't have to panic. Uh, it's got sort of a uh, a picture of how you would band, uh, as well as a description of some of the things you might use in order in order to to make that band. When I saw you in December uh, at the Emerald Cup, um, right. I'm going to paraphrase this poorly, but you'll know where I'm going, and, and you can take it from there. You were you were uh, you were talking about some of the topics from your Teeming with Fungi book, and right. and you were talking about that you recommend it for cannabis folks to to roll their seeds in a particular um, right. fungus uh, to to support them as soon as they pop. And and I was I was taking as many notes as I can, but I but I, I missed. <laughs> Which which uh, which um, mycorrhiza it was, and what your actual strategy was, and it was fascinating. So so with that setup, will you just kind of deliver that that little nugget to everybody? Well, you put me in a I will, but you put me in a very difficult position. See, so let me back up for a second. All right. All right, so I've got these three – got a trilogy of books, right, which I'm supposed to sell. That's how I make my living, right? And the last book is teeming with – so I call myself Lord of the Roots, incidentally, because I have this trilogy. Ba-bump, bump. Uh, so my last book is teeming with, with, with uh, fun, fungi. People should go out and buy it and find where that one is in the book. <laughs> Right. No, no doubt. Rather but, than my tell, I always go so fast when I talk so that people can't write it down, so they will go out and buy the book. But I know everybody's going to go out and buy the book anyway, so I'm going to. I'll talk about it. But let's quickly go back a little bit and talk about these mycorrhizal fungi. Ninety-six percent of the plants on the planet Earth have them. This is the reason why plants were able to colonize terra firma four hundred million years ago. Uh, and 200 million years ago, a second type developed, and this second type of mycorrhizal fungi does exactly what the first one does, only in a slightly different fashion, and that is, in return for these exudates, which we talked about at the beginning of the program, these guys take the exudates from the plant by 
literally taking it from the plant. They're inside the plant, living inside the plant. And the other end of them are outside the plant. And in return for those exudates, they go out and get all sorts of nutrients, which they then transfer to the plant. And if they don't transfer them to the plant, then the plant doesn't give them the exudate. So this is a very symbiotic relationship. And they get nitrogen, phosphorus, those two in particular, but copper and zinc and uh, a couple of the M's, which always I always forget, just going right out of my mind, manganese and uh, – anyway, uh, they go out and get all these terrific things that the plant can't get itself, and so they feed the plant. So they're very, very important, and we know of about 360 different kinds – we know that we can only grow about 15 of them. And if you buy a package of what's called mycorrhizal fungi, even though it may say mycorrhizae, it's really called mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizae is the symbiotic relationship that forms, and it always includes a root, so that's not the right term for what's in the package. You get mycorrhizal fungi. You'll see that there are about eight or nine of them listed on that package. Only one of them happens to associate and form that relationship with cannabis. And this particular one forms that association with cannabis sativa, indica, rudialis. It doesn't matter whether it's Durban poison, Jack Herrera, you know, uh, whether it's teeming with microbes. No, there is no one called teeming with microbes yet. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't matter what it is. There's only one that feeds these guys, and it is called, so get the pens and paper out. Oh, wait a minute. Here's the problem. <laughs> when I first started writing the book, it was called Glomus Mossy, M-O-S-S-A-E-A, -E or A, you know, you know, the Latin, Mossy. Right, Glomus, G-L-O-M-A-S, Glomus. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, over the two or three years, three years that it took me to write the book, the genetics of these individual mycorrhizal fungi became important enough to know that they began to study them, and they have now reassigned the names of all of them. <laughs> My poor editor had to go back through the book and rewrite all of these Latin names. That's why we've got second editions, Jeff. <laughs> but, uh, it's not that easy to write. A second edition, people don't understand just as an aside, a second edition, they say, okay, if you can take out six words, you can put in six words. <laughs> They're not that easy to write. They don't just say, oh, here's four, you get, you know, put in a new chapter. No, you got, ah. Anyway, uh, to go back, uh, the one that you want is now called uh, uh, rhizoph rhizophagus, R-H-I-Z-O-P-H-A-G-U-S, rhizophagus, inter, intra, I-N-T-R-A, intra racides, R-A-C-I-D-E-S, rhizophagus, with a capital R, Interracetes with a small i. But many times in the package, you'll see it as Glomus mossy or as Glomus interracetes or as <laughs> Ragophagus 
Mossy. So it's very confusing, but but you get the idea. That's the one you want. Yeah, you got. They, we've got our key search terms now, and right. you know that that should get us there. And and you know, um, hopefully, everybody who's listening is 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 super geeked about this now. And you can find links to the Teaming with Fungi book um, on the Shaping Fire podcast on the episode page for this interview. Um, and also, you know, it's an easy thing to find on Amazon if you yeah. want to go there on your own. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's go ahead and take our second break. When we get back, we're going to take some um, questions from the show audience. How exciting. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is organic gardener and author Jeff Lowenfels. We'll be right back. Using pesticides when growing cannabis has been common for a long time. Nowadays, though, we know better. We know that most pesticides formulated for food crops have never been tested for use with cannabis. They've been tested to be eaten in tiny doses. They have not been tested to be inhaled and especially not concentrated into a cannabis oil. Chemical residues from pesticides are not healthy for anyone, but they are especially dangerous for patients. For commercial cannabis growers, this has become very impactful. Cannabis enthusiasts and patients have gotten educated enough that they avoid growers who used pesticides. Not only that, but states across the country have begun making pesticide testing mandatory on all licensed cannabis crops. The time has come to find a better way to fight garden pests than covering your cannabis in chemicals. And there is a better way. Let some good bugs fight your bad bugs. Beneficial insects and predatory mites have come a long way since we were buying ladybugs online and putting them in the grow room and just hoping for the best. Natural Enemies Biocontrol can help you solve pest issues without using chemicals. Natural Enemies founder Shane Young learned best practices from working in the ornamental plant industry and has fine-tuned those strategies specifically for large cannabis crops. Shane works with commercial cannabis clients across the country to ensure that they keep their crops safe and pest-free without the use of chemicals. Natural Enemies has proven solutions for spider mites, aphids, thrips, russet mites, broad mites, shore flies, white fly, and others too. You can rely on Natural Enemies for expertise and excellent service. For more information, go to shapingfire.com forward slash natural enemies or simply click on their banner in this week's newsletter. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll like audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, tell you stories, and teach you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer that I want to tell you about. Right now they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you'll get a free audiobook straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or download it and listen to it, you know, like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to just check out the service for free. And the service is pretty great. There are whole sections on permaculture, sci-fi, history, um, biography. Hell, you can even listen to a book about card counting in blackjack. 
whatever. It's all pretty rad. So that's the deal. Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. And their online library of free books is pretty incredible. So just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more, or just click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is organic gardener and author, Jeff Lowenfels. So during this last set, we're going to take some questions from uh, the, the Shaping Fire audience that I asked for a couple weeks ago since I knew that you were going to be on the show. And the first question is from Mike West. And, and Mike asks, since most of the plant's cannabinoids are created by enzymatic biopathways, but the precursors are provided by symbiotic relationships, would Jeff please describe the microbiology biosynthesis of terpenes and cannabinoid precursors in the roots as well as foliar biomass? So, so what do you have for that there, Jeff? Ooh, yeah, well, you know, now, see, this, this, this felt, Mike should read my second book, Teeming with Nutrients, uh, because it really sort of discusses that in a, in, in a much simpler way. What I think he's saying is, listen, all of these things are built inside the plant, uh, but they're 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 created using the enzymes inside the plant. The enzyme factories cr- make all of the things that are inside a plant, and I, I'll go back and discuss that in a quick second. Uh, but but all of the enzymes are taking goods that come from the soil uh, through a biological pathway, i.e., uh, the microbes mineralize it and make it available to the plant, and the uh, mycorrhizal fungi go out and get it and bring it to the plant, and you know it's kind of an interesting. It can it gets converted inside the plant from one sort of energy outside the plant to another kind inside the plant. So let me just back up for a second and and, and say that the second book. Uh, and one of the reasons why people find it a, a little bit complicated talks about how plants eat. And you can't talk about how plants eat unless you talk about cellular biology. The first book is microbiology. Microbiology is a lot of fun because we studied it in high school and, you know, we know parameciums and amoebas and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of fun because, you know, we, we, you know we're bacteriophobes as, as a group and, you know, fungophobes and sort of study them and read about them and the microbiology is fun. On the other hand, cellular biology was always a pain in the butt. Nobody really liked it. You couldn't see the stuff. You had to use microscopes. Even in microscopes, you couldn't see things. You had to use pictures in books. Everything was two dimensions. It wasn't fun. Today, on the other hand, it, it, it is not only sort of fun because we have electron microscopes and now we know a lot more about what happens inside a cell. Um, but as gardeners and growers of cannabis, there's a need to know what goes on in cellular biology. So, so what happens in the soil is described in the first book, Teeming with Microbes. And, uh, I, you know, those three methods that I described before are used to bring in individual nutrients into the plant and the nutrients enter the plant and there are only 18 of them and they enter the plant each through their own gateway and their own gateway through each individual cell in the plant and each cannabis plant might have 20 trillion individual cells each one of them has a plasma membrane just inside the cell wall and that plasma membrane has these little tunnels and gateways and each individual tunnel takes in only one kind of nutrient molecule and each one of those gateways is constructed by the enzymes as is the plasma derma which is that plasma membrane as is the cell wall and as is 
every single thing made inside the cell by using enzymes. And each individual cell has 10,000 or more different kinds of enzymes and uh, at least a thousand of each one of them in an individual cell in which a cannabis plant or of which a cannabis plant might have a 20 to 30 trillion. And these enzymes take these individual 18 elements. You can't play cards with 18 cards, but they're able to convert these 18 elements into every single thing you see in a plant. And therefore, every single thing basically you see in an animal. Because that animal, you may not be a vegetarian, but that animal you eat is. And they're eating plants which are made up of these cells, which have all these enzymes, which have made up every little piece. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> and so uh, Mike should read the second book and, and, and with that question in mind. Right. That That's a great answer. And you know, it's a really on point answer too, because, uh, you know, you mentioned about, you know, you know, at the cellular level, we can't see them. And when I, when I actually, uh, you know, asked for, for questions for you, uh, Trent Rinke, uh, wrote in and he says, um, oh, tell Jeff that his three books caused me to buy my first high powered microscope. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Well, I mean, you know, you think about it. Let's take, uh, a flushing, you know, the idea that you flush your plants. Uh, or hydroponics. You can't understand how you can't understand either of these things. I like to say you can't understand why you shouldn't flush, and you can't understand uh, you know even the use of hydroponics if you don't understand the cellular biology involved. And it's it is fascinating, and it's very very important for the grower that's trying to grow good organic weed. And and it's also important from a philosophical perspective because you can't help reading the second book walking away with the idea that wait a second you know we maybe you know maybe you and i are just part of a big cell <laughs> you know we're, we're two enzymes and these ideas that we're kicking back and forth are like that enzyme making we're making ideas here mm -hmm. and these ideas build up and all of a sudden somebody becomes a grower boom Wow, this is the same thing that happens inside an individual cell. Maybe we're just one of 37 trillion cells in a gigantic cannabis plant. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> it's different, just a difference of magnitude. <laughs> you, you know, you can't just read these books. You've got to sit back after you read them, you know, and ingest a little bit of this wonderful uh, chemical and let the cannabinoids, you know, help you think about what you're doing, you know, from a 360 degree way up in the air view and when you have the science from these books you can do that did you did you say uh in, in that last bit that um that you don't recommend flushing i don't i don't recommend flushing uh and i don't recommend you know i don't recommend using kelp for the reason that people use kelp i mean the you know the plant has these 18 nutrients um you you, you put kelp down it's got 56, 62 nutrients. They don't need the rest of those nutrients. You put the kelp down to feed the soil food web, yes, uh, you know, but not to feed the plant, really. Um, and then flushing, I mean, why do people flush? Hmm. If you're feeding your plant properly and it's growing properly, it's balanced properly, what are you, trying, what are you flushing out? What do you flush out? You flush out carbohydrates. 
I mean, I can't think of anything else you can flush out. Well, it seems to be a holdover <laughs> from people still using bottled salt nutrients, right? And uh, you know, I, most of the most of the hardcore probiotic growers are like, "Eh, what's the point?" Once once you're all green, yeah, yeah. So well, uh, even with the even with the salts, I mean, I got a question. I mean, you can oh, you, if you grow hydroponically, basically, as far as I'm concerned, you can almost always taste the chemical. Um, you know, you can flush all you want. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think you're doing? You're growing in water. That's flushing. I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But right. Yeah. On. So, so another question comes in from Seabass Wolf. He asked, "What mycelium from my home garden or a nearby forest could I dig up and use on my cannabis plants? Um, what plants or trees in nature would provide good mycelium starts for me to mix into my soil?" Okay, uh, great question. Um, you know, first of all, not from your trees because your trees use the other kind, which is the ectophil mycorrhizal. The cannabis plants, and notice I say cannabis. I, th- I, I think using the word marijuana is is still racist. <laughs> it was racist when it's it started back in the 1930s. So I don't use it. I use I use the word cannabis. Uh, it just girdles me that Alaska, for example, has the Marijuana Act. Oregon has the Oregon Marijuana Program. No, it's should be called cannabis. But anyway, um, uh, where was that question again? Let's see. What mycelium oh, yeah. from his yeah. home garden can he, so can trees, he bring no, in? Yeah. So tr- trees, no good. Cannabis requires that one that I mentioned, the rhizophagus. Uh, rhizophagus, you got the, you all wrote it down, right? Uh, and and uh, you can get it from carrots, <laughs> um, I think peonies, um, I believe potatoes. So there are some things that you grow in your garden that also use the same the same fungi, but but why not you know why not use your previous plants? Yeah, right on. Because we know it's there because it's it's well, their main hope, source. Yeah, we certainly hope it's there, and and, and it's certainly there if you put it there. So um, uh, it's, it's it, it makes a great deal of sense. The other thing that I think people are beginning to notice, uh, at least at least I've, I've been told this, a number of people who who, who do know, uh, and that is that when you grow in a container, um, you, you get some pretty quick multiplication of the spores. Um, when you grow in a field situation or a big bed situation, you get you get the mycelium, uh, and it turns out that when that mycelium is broken up, it will produce propagules that will grow into uh, the, the the or will actually act as spores uh, and grow new fungi. So, um, you know, it's pretty cheap to buy, particularly when you know that you only need the one. It gets more expensive when you're buying seven and eight or nine different kinds. So now that you know what to look for on the package, you just buy the one. Um, you know, you might want to be thinking that way. Right on. So here's kind of a fun one. Uh, listener Tony Leva of Boneyard Seeds in the Emerald Triangle down there writes to ask if you have any particular cannabis cultivars that you personally like for ease of growth, yield, and the terpene profile. Well, I, you know, my all-time favorite is Durban Poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, who doesn't like Durban Poison? Uh, quick, quick grower, beautiful plant, best terpene taste I can think of. Whew. God, I love it. Um, here in Alaska, you know, we, we, we've had a funny, funny situation. It's been legal here in Alaska in the, in the privacy of your home, uh, tent, hotel room, etc. And so we've been growing it here forever. But for years and years and years, we grew too 
things. The the first was what people, you know, euphemistically call MTF, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I don't know whether we all had the, but it was always the same stuff. And so for I'm i swear to God for five or ten years we were all smoking the same stuff. You know, it got pretty boring. <laughs> uh, then Northern Lights appeared. Uh, and, uh, so then, okay. And now, of course, we've got legalization. Um, but we, we've got a very interesting problem here, and that is our day length situation does not coincide properly with the temperature. And so when you live in Alaska, you have this wonderful burst of daylight. And if you use light deprivation, you can have a phenomenal crop. But if you've just got a regular backyard greenhouse, it gets cold before the plant sets the flowers fully. Uh, it didn't last year. It was the first year ever, and people were just rejoicing beyond belief. And so we're limited to what we can grow, and a lot of people grow auto flowers. And, uh, you know, when you grow auto flowers, you don't end up with clones. You don't end up with giving seeds to other people. And so there really isn't sort of a, <laughs> you know, what do you like to grow? I like to grow auto flowers because they're easy, but, gee, they're all different. Yeah. You never You never know what you're getting. So. Uh, but to go back again, if I had my way, oh, God, the whole world would be growing Durban poison. <laughs> right on. So the, the last question for you, uh, Mike Flanagan writes in to ask about your thoughts on Korean, nat- <clears throat> Korean natural farming. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and interestingly enough, uh, teaming with microbes, which has been translated into, I think, nine languages now, uh, was early on translated into Korean. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Uh, it's called Kamsamida Amoeba, <laughs> which I love. Uh, and every now and then I'll go into a Korean restaurant here in Anchorage, uh, and I like to bring the book with me. Uh, and they're very impressed. Uh, <laughs> that and and uh, $16.50 gets me a pretty good Korean meal here. But anyway, um, it, it, you know, it is a, it is a form of – uh, soil food web gardening, I guess, if that's what you want to call using beneficial organisms. Uh, there's a, there's, you know, a, it's, it's very similar to EM, lactic acid, uh, bacteria. It's got about six or seven or eight really key bacterias. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it cycles the nutrients. Um, uses mycorrhizal. It's 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 not different from a soil food web system. Uh, it's just that there's a bunch of different uh, ways that to add amendments. So that there's fermented fruit juices and fermented plant juices and amino acid juices and uh, all all sorts of nutrient mixes that you can make. And yeah, I think you know. I mean, I think it certainly works. Um, it's it is a variation of adding either foods. Or minerals, I mean, or, or minerals are some of the foods, foods or microbes so that the soil food web will give the plant the, the microbes it needs to work with. Right on. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of work. But I, you know, and it's very interesting, and I, I can't see how you can't go through uh, the Korean system without learning a tremendous amount of stuff. It's almost like biodynamic farming. Yeah, I think that it's uh, for for somebody who's moved beyond their compost teas and the basics, uh, Korean natural farming, and, and even very specifically the fermented uh, the juice ferments um, are are really exciting and nerdy. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but I think there's also animal involvement and you know, all sorts of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, and let's face it, there's some spectacular, spectacular farms and gardens in Korea. It must work. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show today. This has been really exhilarating and has opened so many new doors for folks. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Well, I hope we get to meet again. And anytime you want to have a guest who you can hardly shut up, you give me a ring. Jeff Lowenfels is the author of the books Teeming with Microbes, Teeming with Nutrients, and Teeming with Fungi. You can find links to those books on the Shaping Fire page for this episode or by going directly to Jeff's website at www.jefflowenfels.com. That's L-O-W-E-N-F-E-L-S.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. Mm-hmm.